I was a kid in elementary school, they had us watch an old episode from 1959 of a show that was called The Twilight Zone. And the, the particular title of that episode that we had to watch was called The Eye of the Beholder. The show is filled with this long, dramatic buildup to a climax, and the episode featured a young woman. She was bandaged all around her head. You couldn't see any of the skin of her face or any facial features whatsoever, just bandages. She kind of looked like a mummy throughout the course of the show. They never showed the faces of the doctors. They only showed her bandaged face that was kept a secret until the big reveal. And the woman, uh, the, the conversation that's going on around her is that she longs to look like everybody else. After 11 different surgeries, uh, the big reveal would come when they would take the bandages off in this episode. And if this 11th treatment didn't work, then she would have to be cast out of society with other people that look like her, ugly. Well, the show climaxes and they take the bandages off and she looks like what many people in this world would consider beautiful. But as the camera pans out and turns, the doctors that were seeking to help her to look normal, they all have contorted faces that are ugly and hideous like monsters. The point that the show was trying to make is that beauty is subjective. That beauty is determined by the eye of the beholder. The minority within that society was the people who looked beautiful and the normal Thing within that society in the show was people that looked like monsters. Well, the show doesn't make any applications other than that, the, the title, and it, it just throws out this topic for us to consider, right? So then it's up to us to interpret uh, what is meant or how we should apply some of the truth that we see in an episode like that to our lives. I don't remember exactly what our teachers in elementary school tried to teach us from this particular episode. I only remember thinking, Man, if that's true, if it, one of the lessons I think that we can learn from a show like that is that human beings are horrible at determining what is truly beautiful, what is truly good, and actually what is true. Something in us knows that goodness, beauty, and truth exist, but we are horrible at finding it. Cultural ideas of beauty often focus on subjective outward appearances that change depending on age or depend, depending on culture and society. But determining what is truly beautiful can't be divorced from what is truly morally good or right. Any definition of beauty that divorces itself from goodness and truth will ultimately fail and then will lead not to rejoicing, but to sorrow and misery. There is such a thing as beauty and ugliness. There is such a thing as goodness and wickedness. There is such a thing as truth and untruth, but it's not determined by the eye of the beholder. No, beauty, goodness, and truth are determined by the one true and living God who is upright. This is what we're considering this morning from Psalm chapter 33. Yahweh, I am that I am, the one true and living covenant God, is righteous. He is upright. Listen to Psalm 33 as I read. 
verses 1 through 22. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters from the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. This is God's holy infallible, sufficient, necessary, authoritative word. I pray that he would write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. We don't know the exact context of this psalm, but it seems that it's a song of victory after battle. It uses that type of language down there in verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. So it seems to be a song that's written as a response to victory that the Lord has given to his people in military battle. But the truth of this psalm expands well beyond military strength. God is the ground of all good. God is the ground of all that is beautiful. God is the ground of all that is true. And he has proved this by giving victory to his people over their, their greatest enemy, sin. Their greatest enemy, God's wrath that is coming against us for our sins by the power of Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his justifying resurrection. He is the fulfillment of all of God's word. And so he is the one to whom we look, even from this psalm of, uh, that Israel sang through the ages. Here's the big idea of the text. God has proved his righteousness in creation, in his sovereign rule over the nations, and in his love. Praise him. Or to summarize in two words, praise him. 
uh, four points from the text. Number one, the righteous praise God. The righteous praise God. Two, he made all things. Three, he rules over the nations. And then four, he loves his people. Goodness, beauty, and truth are defined and grounded in the immutable, unchangeable nature of God's righteousness, of his holiness. We see at the end of the text here, we praise what we think is beautiful. We praise what we think is good. We praise what we think is powerful. We praise what we think is true. Well, friends, God alone is the definition of goodness. He is the definition of beauty, and he is the definition of truth. Consider first, the righteous praise God. That's the first point. Is righteousness and justice subjective only to the eye of the human beholder? Is humanity good at the core? Can we determine, are we the final arbiters of truth and righteousness, truth and beauty? Right, so, so is whatever we praise good? If we praise things in our lives, we think that there's some inherent good in it, some value in it. What happens when my so-called truth that I hold to contradicts your so-called truth in your life? Well, look at verses 1 through 3 again. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Look at the subject. You righteous, the upright. Psalm 33 is addressing not just humanity in general, but the specific people within the human race that are the subject here. Righteous or upright. Tzedek in Hebrew carries the sense of what is right and just. And Yashar here in the text in the Hebrew, it carries the sense of upright of something straight, something is level for your feet, a flat, straight path, something that is pleasant, pleasing to the heart, and good. And whatever is right is true, and whatever is true and right is good, and whatever is right, true, and good is beautiful and pleasurable. These ideas are all connected, and they aren't subjective. It's not up for debate. The people of God are upright and righteous, not because there's something good in them, but because they have come to know the God whose word is upright. You can see that in verse 4. But later we see as well that they have come to know not only God's word, but God himself, the God who loves righteousness, the God who loves justice and judgment. The righteous and upright are the people who have come to know God's word as the ground of all that is straight, all that is right, all that is beautiful, all that is pleasurable, all that is true, all that is just, and all that is good. Again, this is not up for debate. The good, the true, and the beautiful, they are not left up to the eye of the beholder. They are determined by the one true and living God who reveals himself in his good, right, true, and beautiful word. In many ways, verses 1 through 3 are the conclusion of the entire psalm. You can almost slap them on the end of the psalm. It, it's a heading summarizing the response for everything that we see of how we should respond to the attributes of God and of his work in this world. Because God made all things by the power of his upright word, shouts of praise should resound unto him. 
Because God rules over the nations, sing to the Lord a new song. Because God saves and loves his people, shout for joy to I am, to Yahweh. We are all creatures with the capacity to shout. We are all creatures with the capacity to speak. Because we're made in the image and likeness of a God who speaks. And we were made, and we know this, even just through human observation, we know this, that when something good happens, we were made to sing and shout among other people, to make known whatever that good thing is among a great congregation. When there's a military victory over wickedness and oppression in the world, over the weak, when they come home, there's a parade, a shout of joy. When illness is cured, we shout for joy. When our team wins, we shout for joy. When the protagonist of a story overcomes a struggle to crush wickedness, we shout for joy. We feel that excitement in our hearts. When we finish with work and we hit the day off, right, we shout for joy. We shout for joy when our hearts are looking at something and our hearts and our minds are agreement that this thing is good. It's worthy of celebration. These little rejoicings that we experience in our life are dim reflections of the shouts of joy, the praise, the pleasure that we were made to find in the goodness of God, the righteousness and justice of God, the holiness of God. God commands what is good, beautiful, and true. God commands us to praise Him, to give thanks to Him, to sing to Him in these first three verses with accompaniment of instruments. But the point isn't to come to Him like a bunch of mechanical robots, right? that have no hearts. No, rejoicing is married to the idea of happiness, affections that are fixed upon something that is truly satisfying, something that is truly pleasing to us, something that is truly right and straight, something that is smooth and comfortable to us, a comfort to our hearts and to our minds. God commands us to praise Him because He knows that He is the only thing in existence that can bring us joy. We were made for Him. So for us to think that we could be joyful and happy in our lives, living in the absence of a recognition of the one true and living God from whom all good gifts are given in this world, it will only lead to misery and sadness. He knows that He is the greatest good and ground and definition from which all good things find their source. He knows that He is the ground of all things that are truly beautiful. He knows that He is the ground of all truth and righteousness and justice and judgment. If we would pursue goodness with our lives, if we would pursue beauty and truth with our lives, if we would pursue what was right and just in this world with our lives, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we would pursue Him. We would shout for joy to Him. For who he is. And that's even leaving off the things that he has done. Just for the, the sake of who he is. A few points of application. First, regarding music. All music used in congregational worship of God's people should be marked by an acknowledgement of the true, the good, the beautiful, the righteous, the just. The emphasis is always on expressing from our hearts an engagement with the goodness and the beauty, the truth of who God is, and then also what He has done. If our music is so ambiguous, the words of the songs that we sing is so amorphous that our hearts can twist the Word of God to mean something that it should not, that it does not mean, 
then we should reject that kind of song. The text says that we should sing a new song. God's eternally old truth fuels hearts that are experiencing his steadfast love in fresh and new ways each and every morning, every day. So as we live in the world, we live in the love of God if we are in his steadfast love, his covenant love fulfilled in Christ. If we live in his covenant promises of his son, we are living ever, every day in his mercies. And we recognize with Lamentations chapter 3 that even in the midst of the sorrow of exile there, that there is even joy that breaks in coming in each and every morning because he is faithful to his word, to his promises, to his love for his people. If God's people could sing like this with the types and shadows here in the Psalms in the Old Covenant, how much more can we sing of having seen the substance of the covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ? The point isn't new compositions of music, although it certainly includes that. The point is that because of God's mercy and his grace, and our experience of his mercy and grace is new and fresh to us every day, old songs of his love and songs of his mercy are constantly new. Whether we're singing old hymns or psalms or new songs based off of old gospel truths. The point isn't notes on a page. The point is rejoicing hearts, right? The thankful, grateful heart that shouts loudly. I love that. Loud. All right, so the point of music at church isn't that we just listen, but that we actively participate loudly, as it were. And the instruments here take the back seat. We worship the Lord with our voices and with instruments. In the New Testament, the emphasis, though, is always on congregational singing. So while we use instruments uh, to uh, to aid us in singing, shouting loudly our praises to God and instructing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We use instruments for that, but the instruments are not the point. The choir up front is not the point. An orchestra or an ensemble up front is not the point, or some band up front is not the point. The congregation of the church is the choir shouting loudly to God. And playing skillfully with instruments, it doesn't mean that we have license then to sit back and critique and judge poor musicianship among God's people. Although I think that there are appropriate times when we can do that. <laughs> the point is that we want to praise God with our best efforts. To give him our first fruits. The, the chief audience of our singing is not ultimately even the congregation, even though we sing to one another as we as we exhort one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the chief audience is God. Sing to the Lord a new song. He is the audience of our praises of our hearts. The point is that we want to praise God with our best efforts, with our first fruits. He's the chief audience. So yes, we exhort one another, but we're singing to Yahweh. We aren't concerned with impressing other people with our skills, but serving the Lord to the best of our skills. And he knows if we have brought the first fruits. We'll consider this in a minute. He sees everything that we do. He knows the thoughts and intentions of your hearts. 
He knows if we're giving him our best. He knows whether or not we are truly singing from the heart joyful praises to him for his deliverance in Christ. He knows if our hearts are cold. And he knows when our praises come from our mouths, but not from our hearts. This is the mark of those who truly love righteousness, that truly love justice, praising God. Any claim in this world that somebody loves justice, that somebody loves righteousness and truth, but yet they withhold praise from the one true and living God, that's not a person that loves righteousness. That's not a person that loves justice. It's not a person that loves truth. Justice and righteousness is defined by God. Number two, he made all things. So we see some of the reasons for this shouting with joy to the Lord in verses four through nine. To praise God is to agree with his word about what is right, good, and true, and beautiful. The praise uh, to God that we would render is also to acknowledge that he is the source and definition of what is good, right, beautiful, and true. How can we, friends, be liberated from the subjectivism of the age that says that everyone can have their own truth. Even when all of those own truths, so-called, contradict other people's so-called truths. And God's word is the only source of truth. Listen to verses 4 through 9 of Psalm 33. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. This is the first ground, the reason for shouting praise to the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, singing to the Lord a new song, acknowledging the authority, the righteousness, the justice, the goodness, the beauty, the truth of God's word. How can we know what is good? How can we know what is true? How can we know what is just and righteous? How can we know what is beautiful? God's word alone. Here's a helpful description of this from one theologian. Scripture and scripture alone is the, this Latin phrase, norma normans non normata, the norm of norms that cannot be normed. The Bible alone, inerrant, is alone, is inerrant and infallible, must remain foundational for our epistemology, our knowledge, our understanding of knowledge and thinking, and always serve as our highest authority, the norm that norms all others. Look at how God does his work there in verse 4. All his work is done in faithfulness. This simply means that God does what his word says. He will follow through with his promises. You can put all of your eggs in the basket of God's promises that he will accomplish his word. He will keep his promises. Nothing can stand in the way of him accomplishing his work that he has said that he will do. And what he has said that he will do is good. What he has said that he will do is right. It's beautiful. It's true. God is not like us. He keeps his promises. He is faithful to see it through. 
he will see his work all the way through to the end. This truth is quickly chased by the statement that God loves righteousness and justice or judgment. God loves righteousness, justice, and the execution of both of those in judgment. And we praise God because he is the only hope of impartial judgment. He is the only hope of arbitration on behalf of what is truly good, right, and beautiful. All the truth claims that this world would claim that they have ownership of will be held to account to a more foundational truth, God. And the truth that God has expressed from his very character to us in his word, in the Bible. Our sinful hearts respond, who is God? Who is God to claim the foundation of righteousness and justice? Who is God to say that he is the owner of truth? Who is God to say that he alone defines what is truly beautiful and pleasing in our sight? But the psalmist responds in verses 6 through 9, God has authority to make this claim because he made everything. But look at where the emphasis is laid. The word, or the breath of his mouth, in verse 6. Or he spoke and commanded, in verse 9. God brought all existence into being, into existence, out of nothing, or non-existence, by speaking. Why does he have authority to judge what is truly good, beautiful, and true? Because he made and owns everything. All that I have does not belong to me. My family, my kids, my, my wife, my possessions, I own nothing. The proof of that is that when I die, I can't take any of it with me. Anything that, that can be called objectively right, just, and beautiful in creation finds its source in the one whose word is righteous and just and who will judge all things. We tend to think of ourselves as victims. Like we're owed something in this world. We think that God owes us good things, that we deserve beautiful things as if we are great. And as if we are the point and purpose of all things. We often think justice is always something that should be done to others on behalf of us. We blindly assume that justice favors me. We tend to be lenient on our own sins, but we tend to be heavy upon the sins of others. This veers into the idea that righteousness and justice subjectively belong to the eye of the beholder again. But we don't get to determine justice based off of our self-centeredness, our narcissism. Justice doesn't mean that we get what we want. There aren't two versions of justice, one for you and another for me. We often say that we want justice, but we often don't want justice for our own sins. Only the sins of others. The fact that God loves righteousness and justice becomes a proving ground to show his covenant love for his people. That's what steadfast love of the Lord means here in, verse, uh, in, in these verses, but later also in verse 18. God's kessed, particular, exclusive, covenant, committed love that he has promised to his people. That's what the steadfast love here refers to. God's love for his people will prove itself in a way that perfectly is harmonious and consistent with his love 
for righteousness and justice and judgment. The covenant hope of an offspring, Messiah, is bound up with God's perfect love for righteousness, for justice and judgment. When, when we look at the things that God has made, we are reminded that he owns everything. We remember that he is the author of goodness, that he is the author of beauty, that he is the owner and author of truth. We remember that he will judge all men in perfect equity and justice. This is the only equity, the equality of outcome that we are promised in existence, that we will all be judged by a righteous God for our sins. But we also need to remember that he has promised to save his covenant people, his sinful, undeserving people. He has made this promise. He, he will be faithful to keep his word, to fulfill that promise. The earth is full. Look at the description there. The earth is full of his steadfast, his covenant love. The earth here is a reference for those who fear the Lord. It's not a reference to the material time and space of land, but to people. We see this more clearly in verses 8 through 9. But all the earth fear the Lord. He's not talking about trees and cars and houses and grass. He's talking about the people. See, look at the parallel. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Who's the earth that is referring to here? That all the earth is filled with his steadfast love? The inhabitants, the people. As God's people come to a knowledge of his righteousness. As his people obey the creation mandate to fill the earth and to subdue it for the sake of God's glory, God's covenant love then expands to all nations. As his people hope in the promise of the offspring that would come from Eve to Abraham, to Israel, to David, to Jesus Christ. As the nations trust in the offspring, so God expands the, the covenant love, the, the knowledge of his salvation and deliverance of a sinful people by his grace alone to all nations, all the earth. The perfect love of righteousness and justice will be matched by God's perfect covenant love for his people. And his people will be composed of a people, we see even a glimpse of this here, that will be composed of a people from all tribes and tongues and nations, all the earth. Because God is saving a people from all skin colors, languages, nationalities, we proclaim this gospel, the good news of God's steadfast love to all peoples, not just to the Jews, not just to the people that we think that God would favor according to human standards. No, all people in the world. And we see in the text as well later that God doesn't save all. He pours out deliverance for his chosen people that he chooses, that he elects. And yet we see that there is a knowledge of his steadfast love of deliverance for his people, for all nations. Where would this be fulfilled? In Christ. Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life that none of us have lived and die a death that his people deserve, his people from all tribes and tongues and languages, so that in his eternal kingdom, there would be a great throng of people, a great multitude that would stand and bow before the throne of the King of kings and Lord of lords forever, giving praise to him for his glory in the salvation of his people through the power of his death and resurrection. All the people of the earth, there will be 
those that are from all tribes, tongues, and languages that will be incorporated into this covenant steadfast love of the Lord. This is the command to repent and believe that we should issue to the nations because we don't know who those are that the Lord has chosen to be his own. So we share the gospel. Asking of our friends and family, trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be forgiven for your sins while there's time because it is appointed for man to die and then after death comes the judgment. And only those that are found in the ark, the safe ark in the flood of God's wrath, the ark of Jesus Christ, will be brought safely into his kingdom. This one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he says, let all the earth fear the Lord, let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. It's a call to the nations to repent. You, friend, if you're listening, you're not trusting in Christ. You can be forgiven for your sins. Trust in him. Stand in awe of him. The whole world stand in awe of God and his covenant promises to his people by trusting in the fulfillment of all of God's promises, Jesus Christ. For he spoke, God spoke, and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God created the world by his powerful word and he has saved the world through his powerful word become flesh, Jesus Christ. God made all things. He alone determines what is truly good, beautiful, right, just, and true. And in his steadfast love, it is open. His steadfast love is open to all who would fear him and humbly shout praises to him and, and, and to fear him in awe of his power. He is master. He is ruler. He is Lord. We are not, so we tremble before his awesome power to judge in perfect righteousness and justice. We see the next point. He rules over the nations. Look at verses 10 through 17. The truly righteous of the Lord praise and sing new songs to the Lord because he rules not merely over us, but over the nations. Not merely over the creation, but the nations. Verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Here we see that kings rise and they fall, not because they're strong, not because they have any uh, more glory in themselves or value in themselves and, and dignity in themselves than other human beings who are made in the image and likeness of God. No, God appoints kings and he removes kings because he is seeking through the events of actual history to bring about his purposes to come into pass. God is ruling over all things, over all the nations. I remember in, in Habakkuk, in, in the opening chapter, he's 
pleading with God to judge Israel for the sin that's going on there. God says that he's going to bring Babylon in to judge the nation of Israel. And he then comes to another existential crisis of God. But, but Babylon's not your people. How could you judge Israel, your people, by an unrighteous nation? And God responds, I'm going to judge Babylon too. No nation will escape the judgment of God in his perfect righteousness. We can't put, if you were in a position of authority or leadership, you didn't put yourself there. God appointed you there for a period of time. Your hope doesn't rest in your own strength. Repent and trust in the one true and living God who rules over all things in his meticulous providence. God has the corner market. Again, we see here in this text of what is good, of what is beautiful, and what is right and true. You hear me saying this over and over again because, guys, we're easily led astray by this world about its claims for righteousness, about its claims for the corner market on, on, on justice. Nations claim authority to determine laws of right and wrong. But rest assured, God will judge the nations impartially in perfect justice. Does a nation say that it's right and just to enslave a people because of their ethnicity or because of their religion? Does a nation say it's right and just to allow the murder of babies in their mother's womb through abortion? Does a nation say it's right to show favoritism to the rich or to the poor? Does a nation say that it's just to show favoritism based off of the color of someone's skin? Does a nation say it's right and just to say that the union between a man and one man and one woman is the same as a man with a man or a woman with a woman? Are we truly so bold as to say that even same gender relationships normally produce that normally produce life deserve uh, and deserve recognition and protection in the same way that a, a type of union that doesn't produce life should? Does a nation say that it's right and just to force people to acknowledge that a boy who wants to be called a girl is a girl as opposed to a boy and vice versa? Now, friends. Whatever a culture, whatever a nation determines is right and good and true will be held to account, not by their opinion or the eye of the beholder, but the eye of the one who sees all and holds all to account, the one true and living God, the one who holds all nations to account. This is a helpful description from Psalm chapter 2 of what's going on here in Psalm 33. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them, the nations, in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, down to verse 9 of chapter 2 of the Psalms. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God brings the council of nations that plot against him, against his truth, against his, what he has defined as beautiful, uh, against what he has defined as good, 
and just to nothing. Our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is not in governments. Our hope is not in laws of the land. It is God who raises up kings. It is God who puts them away. Any council that rejects God as king, any council that rejects what God's righteous word has to say about who he is and about what is good, right, true, and beautiful, it will be crushed. To be on the right side of history is not determined by a popular vote. It's determined by God's word. And friends, this leaves no nation among the kingdoms of men without sin. This is not an argument for a theocracy. This is an argument for the existence of the kingdom of God that spans over in and throughout the kingdoms of this world and will overcome it one day when Jesus comes again. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and his plans will extend to all generations. What is the plan of God's heart? To save a people to save a people from the nations, to be his, marked out as his blessed, happy, content, restful nation. What's the chief mark of this nation? That they acknowledge that God is the Lord. He is the master. He is the ruler. He is the owner. To acknowledge that the good, the beautiful, and the true aren't subjective things that belong to the eye of the human beholder, but to God alone. You know that they acknowledge that God rules over creation, over the nations, and over our definitions of what is good and righteous and just and true by the power of his holiness. The nation that loves the Lord, it's not limited to a geopolitical space or to a, a worldly country that we know within the realm of this world under the sun, east of Eden but a nation that rises up from the nations to be God's kingdom people. Notice the twin inseparable truths of verse 12. God sovereignly chooses his people, and his choice in no way depends on their choice of him. Yet God's people actively choose to acknowledge God as Lord, Master, Ruler, and Owner of all things in contradiction of what the nations counsel each other against the Lord. And again, to be blessed is to be full of gladness, full of happiness, full of joy, full of satisfaction in God in spite of the difficulties that surround them within this world. This is the counsel of the Lord that stands forever to choose a people from all nations as his own heritage. God's counsel, his advice, his wisdom, his decree, his proclamation stands forever, that he will save a people to be a kingdom of priests unto himself, and that he will crush the nations of this world. And then that nation that he chooses will be a happy people in their reconciliation that they have to himself. As Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, we see the fulfillment of this come to pass in Jesus Christ. Again, this is the nation of God's people, the kingdom of God that we see even in part now in faithful, regenerate local churches. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us 
in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the truth that the psalmist here is singing and leading us in singing, God is enthroned in heaven and he sees all men and he observes all of their deeds. Rightness, justice, goodness, beauty, truth is determined by the eye of one beholder. The God who sees all men and observes all our deeds. The greatest threat that comes against us as sinners isn't kings or politicians or armies or governments or other men. No amount of emergency preparation can rescue us from the threat that is coming against us for our sins. All of these things are false hopes of salvation. You might be the best prepper in the world, have a full stock of food in the basement. You might have military strength and weapons or bullets saved up, ammunition, whatever. It's nothing in the face of the greatest threat that comes against you. Not the things of this world, but your own sin and the wrath of God that is going to be coming for your sin. This is one of the reasons why so many in our country despair when a politician loses or why they rejoice so much when another one wins. We're putting our hope and salvation in the wrong thing. Because our perception of what is good, right, true, and beautiful is frequently perverted by sinful human opinion. And we're afraid of the wrong things. And we set our desires on the wrong things that are unable to save us from the greatest threat of our lives. This is why misery so often follows people who have everything that you could ever want from this world in wealth or possessions or protection. Friends, we need salvation. We need deliverance. We need salvation, not primarily from hunger or poverty. We need salvation and deliverance, not merely from the tyranny of the nations, but salvation from God's wrath and hell that we deserve rightly for our sins. We need reconciliation to God. And that leads to the final point. Number four, God loves his people. Why should we shout praises to the Lord? Why should we sing a new song unto the Lord, because he loves us. He loves his people. Look at verses 18 through 22. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad, happy in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. 
In verse 13, God looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man. He will judge all men in perfect goodness, righteousness, justice, uh, beauty, and truth. But notice a powerful distinction between the children of men, between verse 13 and verse 18. Verse 18, those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. God's all-seeing eye is upon all, and he will judge perfectly, but his eye is on his people in a unique way, in a particular way, to not judge them according to what their works deserve, but to deliver their souls from death and to keep them alive in famine. Friends, God is gracious in so many ways to us in our lives. He's gracious to deliver people at times from the nation's rage against the Lord and against his Christ. He's gracious at times to deliver his people from pestilence and plague and illness. But the emphasis here is on God's love to deliver not our physical selves, but our souls, spirit, our souls. This is a spiritual, eternal reality of salvation and deliverance that we have here. God alone is able to save the soul of a man, not primarily from physical death, but from eternal death. From the eternal reality of facing God's righteous, true judgment that we deserve for our sins. God alone is able to save a soul. He alone is able to save people who set their hope on his steadfast love. He alone is able to save, not from the physical things alone that we would face in this world, but from the spiritual, the spiritual eternal reality that we face in God's judgment. He is able to save us from hell. He is able to save us from his wrath. God alone is able to save his people. And again, the steadfast love of the Lord is his covenant love to his elect people, the people that he has chosen, that he has promised to save through the coming of Messiah, of Christ. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. God's steadfast love that does never fail. His decree that will certainly come to pass. His faithfulness to keep his counsel forever is fulfilled in the coming of a son. Through the lineage of Eve, through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Israel, David, a Messiah, a Christ, a king, an anointed one who would save his people from their sins. God has his all-seeing, sovereign eye upon his people throughout the course of history to protect them from the things that threaten them most. Our sin, God's wrath, the world of flesh and the devil that would seek to undermine any hope that we could have for forgiveness through God's mercy and grace in his promised offspring. The God who holds all men to account has made a way that a people from all tribes and tongues and nations might find favor with him, even though we are unjust, we have been unrighteous, that we have offended his divine justice in his law, to be translated from the dominion of darkness and the kingdoms of this world to being transferred to the dominion or the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. That is the hope 
that we have, that we see even Israel is longing for in the singing of this Psalm 33. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's never-failing counsel to save. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver the souls of his people from death and to keep them alive in the face, not merely in physical famine, though we die in this world from eternal spiritual famine of the nations that rage against his righteousness and justice and truth. If you're listening and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for safety in the midst of this world's threats, if you're setting your hope on empty things like vaccines, favor from the culture, a good resume, politics, a government, armies, money, a good security system at your home, worldly comfort and wealth, you will despair at God's final judgment, at the final reckoning of what is truly just and right. If you're listening and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for safety in the midst of these threats, you will be found outside of Christ and cast into eternal conscious torment in hell. This is what God's word teaches us. The eye of God is upon those who are outside of the deliverance and salvation of Jesus Christ that he has accomplished only to their eternal damnation for violating God's righteousness and justice and goodness and beauty and truth. If we are not found in the steadfast love of God's covenant offspring, Jesus Christ, we will face God's right, just, good, true judgment in hell for eternity. But friends, God has intervened in history to send his son to save undeserving sinners like us so that his love for his covenant people who are undeserving of his grace might find a way into his favor, into his pleasure that is in perfect harmony with his love for righteousness and judgment. Turn from thinking that you are the determiner of all things that are right, true, and good in this world and submit yourself to the only one who is able to judge justly and find yourself not in your own works, seeking to say that somehow you deserve God's favor by the good things that you have done. Seek to be found hidden in Christ. Seek to be found covered by the blood of the substitute that is able to take away the sins of the world, that he was able to propitiate or satisfy the eternal wrath of God as a perfect substitute who was sinless, so that we would be counted as righteous, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Find your hope that Christ, the perfect love of God, is fulfilled in him to deliver his people from God's perfectly righteous judgment. Flee God's wrath for your sins. Trust in Christ who lived a sinless life, who perfectly submitted to God's law, to his truth, the truth of his word. Trust in Christ's sinless death to be able to atone for your sins, for my sins, and all the sins of anyone who would ever repent of their sin and trust in him. Set your trust on the beauty, not of what belongs to the eye of the beholder in this world, but the beauty of Christ's death for sinners on the cross so that we might have a hope of being included in that great congregation of God shouting to the Lord that his mercies are new each and every morning, that he has not crushed me today for my sins, but he has yet again covered me in the blood of Christ. He has given the spirit of 
of his son into the hearts of his people to give them new hearts so that they would understand the gospel. They would see their sins. They would turn from their sin and trust in God. This is a beautiful, great salvation that God has wrought for us. Never, ever forget his mercy. So now we wait. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He sent his spirit into his hearts to be our helper until he would come again. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is interceding on our behalf even now. Friends, he will come again. So now we wait. We wait for the consummation of all things in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Even as Israel set their hope in the advent of Christ coming to be born of the virgin, so now we wait for the second advent of Christ. Righteousness, justice, beauty, and truth. It doesn't reside again in the eye of a human beholder. But God alone sovereignly determines all of these things. And God has met all of these requirements of righteousness, goodness, and justice, truth, and beauty. In the perfect righteousness, beauty, truth, justice of Jesus Jesus Christ. God has answered the final prayer that we read here in verse 22 by giving us his son. Listen to it again. I'll close with this. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is our prayer. As we await the second advent of Christ, when he will finally come to judge the living and the dead, when he will safely bring all of those who have ever repented of their sins and trusted in him home eternally into his kingdom, out from the nations of this world. The big idea, again, God has proved his righteousness in creation, in his sovereign rule over the nations, and in his love for his people. Praise him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for all that we have in Christ. We give you praise that we are enabled by the power of your mercy in Christ to be able to shout praise unto you, to sing new songs to you each and every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh God, we pray that you would be with us as we walk through this week. We pray that you would help us to see our sin, that we would see it and fight it, seek to kill it with our hopes set not in our works, but in the perfect work of Christ. God, we pray that you would enable us as well to be an encouragement to each other while we're unable to gather as a church. We pray that you would bring us back together again, that we would sing of your praise, even as we eagerly long for and expect the final return of the King. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.